AI has been described as the last invention we'll ever need to make, driving the fourth industrial revolution. I think everyone understands that whenever there's a, a, an industrial revolution or a mass transformation of our community, of our society, of our civilization, it comes with disruption, it comes with challenges. Most of us use artificial intelligence every day, at least one form of it. It's called Nero AI, and it's designed to perform one function, such as picking out what shows we might like, finding openings in calendars and booking our appointments. We interact with our digital assistants through devices on our wrists, in our pockets and homes. I'm thinking of starting a social media network for chickens, but not as my full-time job, just as a way to make hens meet. <laughs> and if you're like me uh, and you unlock your phone with your face, you're using a pretty good facial recognition AI. And every day that goes by, more progress is being made towards general AI. Replicating a human's multifunctional capabilities, it will be able to perform any intellectual task a human could do, only better. And then our digital overlords will make themselves known, ushering in a new age on Earth where computers facilitate every aspect of our lives. Okay, maybe, but we're not there yet. And if and when we do get there, are we certain that it will have our best interests in mind? Will it be able to account for the infinite diversity of human needs, hopes, and dreams? This question is being tackled daily on smaller scales by very smart people, but they're people. And people, as we know, are notoriously flawed and biased. Left unchecked, our biases and beliefs quietly weave themselves into everything we do. And this isn't all future talk. There are examples of AI tech in use today in Canada that have real-world implications for everyday people. And I want to know what happens when AI systems built with biases coursing through them are operating in the real world. Who does it affect and how? What kind of impact does the use of this technology have on democratic society? And finally, what kind of legal protections are in place for Canadians? How are these laws informed and by whom? Welcome back to Summer Between. I'm your host, Vladimir Matic, and in this multi-part series, we'll hear how AI technologies are in play in Canada today. We'll talk to a guest who's working to inform governments on the dangers and implications of data privacy, but our first guest sees AI and surrounding tech as having a potentially chilling effect on dissent and democracy. Elizabeth Lear is a freelance journalist and researcher at Concordia University. So yeah, so my name is Elizabeth Lear. Um, I've been working as a freelance journalist now for for a couple of years. I'm also a researcher at uh, Concordia University. Um, so I conduct research on uh, international political economy and international relations. She noticed that more AI headquarters were popping up in Montreal and got curious, especially because the neighborhoods that they were appearing in are being increasingly gentrified. So being based in Montreal, actually, um, it was uh, kind of unmistakable how these giant new sort of shiny AI campuses were cropping up everywhere. And increasingly, I was meeting people, um, you know, through common friends or, you know, just uh, through university and so on um, that were sort of involved in this kind of AI research. Um, mm -hmm. And it seemed sort of very opaque and... Uh, it wasn't super clear what was going on there or sort of what things were being researched. Um, and despite sort of, yeah, these new buildings cropping up and as well, 
right, bringing with them um, these dynamics of gentrification, which have had a really um, disastrous impact on some neighborhoods here in Montreal. I'm thinking notably of uh, the Park X neighborhood, which has traditionally been a neighborhood that's welcomed um, like newcomers and newly arrived immigrants and has a really um, a really sort of warm multicultural um, vibe has kind of suffered from this gentrification. A lot of people have been pushed out because of all these uh, new um, AI campuses that have been encroaching um, on the neighborhood. Right. So this is exactly how you start your article. It's titled, Is Canada Driving Surveillance Capitalism? Published in Canadian Dimension. And it's where you discuss how these AI technologies constitute dubious uses of public funds, uh, the implications AI has for democracy. And you also talk about how the unregulated AI market in Canada is a growing threat to civil and human rights. Can you expand a little bit more on some of these topics that you touched on in your article? Yeah, so on the face of it, right, we're told that the um, sort of the advantages of AI are that it sort of increases efficiency or it optimizes efficiency, right? It allows mm -hmm. us to kind of automate a lot of processes. Um, but once you kind of start looking into um, the uses of AI currently um, and the uses of surveillance technology, uh, because actually, I, I mean, they're not... They're not technically the same, but most surveillance technology is, you know, based on um, artificial intelligence and sort of these mm -hmm. automated algorithms. Um, but yeah, you realize that, uh, like right now, the, you know, those that are sort of the quickest on the uptake are, are uh, police forces, for example, right, that are using these technologies to enforce things like crowd control um, and sort of monitoring. Um, and sort of that's in itself is something that's quite concerning. I mean, even um, recently, I was just doing a bit of research yesterday, um, and there was a scandal with this company called Clearview AI mm -hmm. in uh, Canada, right, where the RCMP and other police forces had subcontracted this company um, to for the use of uh, facial recognition software. Um, and obviously, that was a great ethical concern because, well, first of all, um, these softwares generally, um, they encompass uh, right, prejudice and bias, right? I mean, we have this idea as well that AI and algorithms are sort of these automated processes as of, you know, the machines that are, um, that are, you know, allowing them to function are neutral or objective in some sense, but obviously they're not, right? These, these things, they're, they're formulas that are constructed by human beings. And so, you know, they, um, they hold the same biases and the same prejudices that human beings do. Um, mm -hmm. And so those things become inherent in these process, in these technological processes, in these algorithms and in this artificial intelligence. Yeah. So on that note, the accuracy of these programs when it comes to people of color is being proven to not be very high. Uh, many people of color are coming forward to challenge certain findings, um, saying that they've been misidentified as criminals, for example. And studies are showing that they're even less accurate if the person being identified is a woman. Um, and I know in the US and in the UK, these technologies are targeting low-income communities and communities of color, um, mostly to gather more data, uh, but even police departments using it disproportionately on these communities as part of, you know, uh, a, a policing plan. Have you seen any evidence or indication that anything similar is happening in Canada? I'm not aware of them sort of uh, targeting people of color um, uh, sort of explicitly more than um, than anyone else. That being said, 
there have been a multitude of studies that show that sort of these inherent biases um, tend to affect, I mean, or, you know, sort of systematically affect uh, people of color, mm-hmm. you know, more so than anybody, like any other, any other group. So um, despite there not being sort of, um, yeah, sort of a stated uh, targeting of people of color beyond, um, yeah, beyond white people. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it could be quite, I wouldn't be surprised to discover that that were true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't found any information um, that that is the case here in Canada. Um, but to come back to the Clearview AI issue, um, yeah, so these police forces had subcontracted this company um, to use facial recognition technology. Um, but, you know, in a way that wasn't known to, I mean, the vast majority of Canadians, um, the uh, basically the subcontracting of the company itself as well was done in a, in a way that wasn't at all transparent, right? There's sort of no regulation currently that's allowing us to determine um, if these company, or if these uh, institutions rather, like the police, um, like how they would attribute these contracts um, and then how they, they how these companies, essentially how these subcontractors are allowed to use this technology, mm-hmm. um, which is very problematic um, in terms of obviously dissent, everything that has to do with democracy, but also just sort of the inherent um, sort of reproduction of these biases, right? This is sort of a problem that we, um, that we face again and again is that, you know, there's often a lot of mistakes that are made because this technology is sort of enabled to, to differentiate, for example, you know, people from different sort of cultural or ethnic backgrounds are often mistaken for one another. I mean, a lot of studies have sort of shown how these biases um, are very explicit in the use of these technologies. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's very c- concerning on the face of it. But then obviously after this whole issue surrounding the lack of transparency and the lack of regulation in terms of, you know, what government institutions or what public institutions uh, get to use this technology sort of without, you know, the consent of the public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the issue with this Clearview AI company is that it went beyond even the mandate that it was originally given um, and sort of began to record this biometric data, right, this facial recognition or the, the recognition of, um, of images of people's faces on the internet um, and started to amass them sort of in aggregate. So basically, I mean, it's impossible to know at this stage, but you know, there's a chance that, you know, thousands, possibly millions of, you know, Canadians' faces essentially were recorded by this company right. without them knowing. And now this, you know, biometric data is being stored somewhere and we don't really know what it's being used for other than, well, somewhere there was, you know, a link with uh, certain police forces. So obviously, you know, that's extremely concerning from a dem- democratic, I mean, point of view, right? It's a sort of very significant issue in terms of transparency. In fact, we now know more to what extent Clearview was operating in Canada. On February 2nd, 2021, a report was released by the Privacy Commissioners of Canada, Quebec, British Columbia, and Alberta. This report concludes that Clearview AI broke provincial and federal privacy laws by collecting, using, and distributing photos and information of Canadians. Clearview scraped more than 3 billion images from social media and other public web pages building facial recognition technology ostensibly meant for criminal investigations. 
In their report, the commissioners recommended that Clearview AI suspend its services in Canada, which it has for now, and it even cancelled its account with the RCMP. The extent to which the RCMP has been using their product is currently undergoing a separate investigation by the commissioners. This is a big privacy move by Canada, and critics are applauding the findings and recommendations of the commissioners, but say they currently lack the power to enforce any more meaningful consequences. Unfortunately, we have no authority over them, and the federal commissioner has no order-making power or the ability to issue fines against wrongdoing. So basically, Clearview AI is thumbing their nose at Canada and saying, well, okay, we won't keep operating here, but we're not going to delete all of the information, the facial images that we extracted from Canadians. That's Anne Kavukian, former three-term Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, speaking on CTV. Now back to my interview with Elizabeth. Um, and in terms of dissent, I mean, you know, would you permit police to have this information on citizens, um, you know, sort of um, without any you know, any justification or any cause, I mean, that's extremely mm -hmm. concerning because at that point um, that would, you know, that has a very chilling effect on the, the possibilities for, for dissent and, for example, for, you know, social mobilization or for anything that would entail sort of an opposition to, um, uh, to public institutions right. or to public policy, for right. example. I also wanted to ask um, to get your read on the current landscape in the terms of protections that Canadians could expect from our government. Um, you talked about the digi digital charter that was adopted by Canada in 2019. Uh, you had a quote in your article saying that it's basically just words. Uh, there's nothing, you know, no substance behind it. And I know that the Digital Charter Implementation Act was proposed in 2020. Um, so I'm curious to know your thoughts on uh, on the on protections that we can expect in Canada and where it's headed. Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, the digital charter, it's sort of this nice gesture, you know, sort of reaffirms these democratic values, um, you know, values to sort of, you know, um, the right to privacy for citizens, et cetera. But it, it I mean, it has no um, sort of tangible dispositions, right? It has no sort of framework for how these things are going to be implemented, mm -hmm. um, nor does it sort of set out how the government is positioning itself in relation to these, you know, giant tech companies, um, which, as I mentioned, are, are not only encroaching on our urban landscape, but are really sort of coming to play an increasingly important role in terms of the Canadian economy and sort of the Canadian political landscape, um, necessarily, because of because of that role. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, it's been, the charter has been qualified by a few commentators as, you know, sort of, yeah, these you know, nice words, but essentially like, you know, void of any, of any real substance. Um, right. And yeah, I'd have to say, I, I agree with that. Right. So what kind of protections do you hope to see for Canadians against such invasive surveillance technologies? My hopes for the future. Well, I, I think that sort of the first hurdle that we um, that we need to to overcome is this um, issue around transparency and even so sort of around um, public consciousness regarding these issues. Um, mm -hmm. I think for the most part, again, people's relationship to technology is it's this sort of benign thing that's sort of 
coming into their lives and making you know their lives more efficient and you know making things a lot easier you know i'm i'm always shocked for example to see how many people have these you know little google homes or you mm-hmm. know the amazon alexas or whatever these little smart devices in their houses which i mean our, our phones do the same but you know these devices are sort of constantly listening to you and yeah. recording everything that you do and there seems to be very little sort of critical insight into you know what this means and also the fact that it's so um, ubiquitous right is that sort of mm-hmm. everybody's sort of adopting very rapidly these new technologies and it's leaving very little space for sort of this critical insight into you know what this means um, you know politically socially etc um, so I think the first thing that we need to overcome is this lack of sort of critical um, critical thinking and lack of sort of public consciousness. So there, there's definitely some education work that needs to be done. Um, and some, you know, some groups are, are trying their best, but I think there needs to be um, a lot more, you know, notably from, you know, journalism and reporters can play this role, um, educators as well. But yeah, there, there definitely needs to be a lot more work done in terms of um, sort of explaining what these things, you know, what these things are doing and trying to, to understand the effects that they, they have on, you know, on society uh, mm-hmm. more generally. Um, in terms of government action, I think that um, there's some inspiring things that are going on. Uh, for example, in, in Europe, they tend to have a much, um, you know, it's not perfect, but their their controls are on these sort of the use of these technologies are um, a lot better than ours. Um, and they do have, you know, um, these mechanisms to enforce citizens' right to privacy, uh, for example, the right to be forgotten, you know, to, to have your data uh, wiped off certain sites um, and things like that, whereas, you know, we don't really have anything that's equivalent to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, you know, sort of policy options, um, and I think that we can uh, take some inspiration from what's being done elsewhere. Totally. Um, I was just going to yeah. ask, um, uh, the European Union, they... Uh, they they had a moratorium on uh, on the use of these technologies, right? To kind of fig- take some time and figure out um, how to best uh, prepare for them. Um, yep. Do you do you foresee that happening in Canada at all? Like, is there any uh, movement towards that? Um, I don't foresee it happening, sort of um, in the short term. I mean, there is some pushback with the use of um, AI, and I mean perhaps the silver lining and scandals like what happened with the Clearview AI um, uh, use of facial recognition is that people, you know, that there is sort of um, some recognition that, you know, some of these companies are going, um, you know, far beyond the mandates that are given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I mean, yeah, other than sort of these empty propositions or, you know, sort of, you um, you know, occasional debates that some politicians are having. There hasn't really been sort of a, a substantial push towards, um, yeah, the adoption or enforcement of any of any regulation or mechanisms that would that would come to to actually regulate the use of the, this technology here in Canada. And I think, I mean, obviously, the fact that um, you know some of our biggest cities have become sort of these hubs for um, you know, R and D for these, for these corporations is, you know, significant. I mean, there's clearly a link to be drawn there in terms of the role that these companies are playing within the sort of Canadian, within the the Canadian political and economic landscape. Definitely. 
And finally, Elizabeth, I want to ask you, what are some ways that we can educate ourselves and advocate for more stringent protections and transparency as we move forward and as AI technologies become more common in our lives? Yeah, so I, I would say the first thing to do is to to educate yourself, um, as you've mentioned. Um, you know, there's a variety of groups that are um, sort of working very hard to try and um, you know, sort of deconstruct these dynamics and, and present them in a way that's accessible to most people. Because I mean, one of these the issues surrounding um, these new technologies as well is that you know a lot of people have the impression that it does take some kind of a tech background to understand what's what's happening. Um, and to some extent, that is true. Um, but obviously, um, yeah, it's sort of you know it's essential at this point that we that, that we educate ourselves um, both both you know in, individually and collectively um, about you know, how these things are, are how, how these things work and how these things are interacting with, with our lives. Um, and so, you know, there are groups, for example, like the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which is based in California, which has sort of been at the forefront of this issue. Um, they, you know, they produce sort of a wealth of material that can be helpful for people to, to go take a look at and to kind of understand, you know, the issues surrounding privacy, transparency, um, and sort of the cooling of, um, yeah, the sort of the, the chilling effect on, on democracy, essentially, that these technologies are having. Um, yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, obviously, you know, try and, you know, exercise pressure where, where possible and uh, lobby, you know, governments to, to try um, um, and regulate this as much as possible. Um, yeah, the, you know, the issue surrounding these technologies is, again, you know, we're sort of, um, you know, we're having to, um, sort of approach them through a kind of a damage control mm -hmm. type of um, orientation because, you know, there's no sort of regulation that's preventing these companies from, you know, sort of rolling these measures out um, or rolling these technologies out um, sort of, you know, from, from the get-go. So the issue is that we're always sort of trying to catch up and, you know, by the time that we realize that it's encroaching on our right to privacy or on our democratic freedoms. It's you know somewhat too late, too late. to actually have an effect. So so yeah. So I think there there definitely needs to be um, some reflection around uh, why we need to use these technologies and you know is the payoff in terms of optimization and efficiency uh, worth sort of this chilling effect it has on demo on democratic freedoms on our right to privacy etc. Um, yeah and. The, to do that, again, you know, there needs to be uh, much more education in terms of, you know, what these things entail um, and sort of what are the risks ultimately that we're opening ourselves up to in uh, permitting these companies to come um, and to roll out these technologies, you know, and to as well to sort of occupy not only, you know, the, the space physically in terms of their, their role on the or their, their impact on the urban landscape, but also, you know, the, the space politically and economically that they're, they're now coming to take up. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, well, I think that's all for me. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, no, uh, other than to stress sort of the, yeah, the, the need for, you know, for sort of immediate action or yeah. the, the need to, to address these things, you know, promptly because, it's yeah, it's here. It's, it's happening. Yeah, yeah, and in, increasingly, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, the effects, exactly. They're they're much harder. I mean, the, the the negative effects of these of these technologies and and you know of these issues are much harder to roll back once you know they've been rolled out initially. 
Like, yeah, exactly. We're just becoming more entangled within it. And the further, the more time goes by, the the harder it will be to untangle. So it's better to uh, be aware of it now. And uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Later. And also actually something that's maybe just mentioned uh, briefly, that's interesting is that, um, you know, we're, we're going to at some point, because these things are sort of um, machine automated, and it's, you know, this automatic learning that's um, sort of constructed through these biases and these, you know, this prejudice, essentially that's constructed through the lens of the people that are sort of, you know, that are constructing these, um, these technologies and, you know, these algorithms, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to eventually, I mean, if we, if we let this sort of just run free, we're, go- we're going to lose the ability um, to deconstruct it, even from sort of an intellectual um, point of view, right? Because these machines, they, they, you know, they, they sort of, once they have this information, right, they, they, once this process is embedded within them, um, they keep learning and they sort of keep perpetuating these same, you know, systems of logic. Um, and so there's there's a danger there as well that, that we're going to sort of lose the human connection to how these things have been built in the first place. And once they become so embedded within society that, you know, our that the use of them has become so normalized, then we're going to sort of, you know, lose the ability to to even have sort of that, that, that critical insight in terms of, you know, the, the, the biases or all, you know, this myriad of issues that have, you know, accompanied the, the, the very construction of these technologies and of these processes. Right. Right. And I mean, a very real concrete example is just how um, systemic uh, racism is, for example, and right. look at the, look at the work that's being done right now to, to dismantle that. And when you add this tech element to it, that just uh, is like growing exponentially and will eventually outpace uh, human development. It's uh, yeah. All right. Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right. That was Elizabeth Lear, freelance journalist and researcher. We talked about her article titled, Is Canada Driving Surveillance Capitalism? It's published in Canadian Dimension and it's linked in the show notes. I highly recommend giving it a read. And thank you for listening to part one. We're just getting started. Next episode, you'll hear from a Canadian digital rights advocate about the work his company is doing alongside Canadian governments to increase transparency and oversight of the sharing and use of information. If you like what you're hearing so far on Somewhere Between, please rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. It means a lot. And if you have any tips, comments, or suggestions, feel free to shoot us a note via email. Hello at somewherebetween.ca. That's hello at summerbetween.ca. And lastly, if you want to give a public shout out to anybody or leave a message for our listeners, there's a link in the show notes where you can leave a voice message. You could hear your message in the next episode. Thank you and take care, my friends.